When I was a boy, my best friend in all the world was our black standard poodle, Moppet. We kept her fur trimmed, but not in one of those fancy French clips. Moppet was smart, sweet, and playful. And despite her busy dog schedule, she always took the time to listen to my troubles. As a young man, I became a vegetarian after gazing into the eyes of a bear at the National Zoo in Washington, D.C. Not that I ever had any intention of eating a bear. <laughs> but after staring for a long time into that creature's eyes, I concluded that he had a soul. And I decided I didn't want to eat anything that could look at me like that. Now, I'm not a strict vegetarian, and I am an enthusiastic scavenger. So if you order pepperoni pizza and there's a slice left over, I'm your guy. <laughs> but I'm not going to order pepperoni pizza and feed the factory farm system. My family has two cats now, Patrick and Walter, whom we adopted last year from Broken Tail Rescue. They get along famously, cuddling together, grooming each other, and sometimes competing in ferocious kitty Olympics at 3 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and they listen as sympathetically to my daughter Lucy's sorrows as Moppet once did to mine. We have a special relationship with domesticated animals, a symbiotic relationship, where each of us contributes and each of us benefits. We offer our pets security, food, shelter, and affection and they return affection and companionship. But we are just as interdependent with animals in the wild. The eagle wheeling over the high cliffs, the salmon willing itself up thundering falls to spawn, the wolf staring into the frozen darkness waiting for caribou, the tiniest plankton at the bottom of the aquatic food chain, all connect us to the web of life upon which we all depend for nourishment both spiritual and physical. As indigenous people remind us, they are all our relations. We know the web of life today is sorely strained. In the last four decades, according to the World Wildlife Fund, the world's population of mammals, birds, reptiles, amphibians, and fish has fallen by more than one half, while the human population has doubled. These are the living forms that constitute the fabric of the ecosystems which sustain life on Earth, the Fund's director warns. The main reasons for the decline are habitat loss, hunting, fishing, and climate change. Just this past week came the report of more than 35,000 walrus beached on the Alaskan shore for lack of sea ice in the warming Arctic waters. Hauled out on land, the great tusked sea mammals are vulnerable to stampedes, predators, disease, and starvation. Two weeks ago today, dozens of us from First Parish in Cambridge joined thousands of Unitarian Universalists and more than 300,000 demonstrators overflowing the streets of New York City in the People's Climate March. It was a beautiful day in every sense of the word. In one of the most visibly diverse demonstrations I've ever witnessed, people from all walks of life flooded Manhattan. 
trade unionists, scientists, healthcare workers, actors, dancers, musicians, teachers, janitors, students, Buddhists, Christians, Hindus, Muslims, Jews, Unitarian Universalists, pagans, feminists, womanists, mujeristas, socialists, vegans, environmental justice activists, immigration justice activists, anti-fracking activists, anti-keystone activists, peace activists, community activists, indigenous people, young people, old people, grandparents, grandchildren, even puppets, all united for climate justice. 310,000 people and not a single arrest, not one, until the next day when over a hundred protesters engaged in nonviolent civil disobedience on Wall Street. At exactly 12.58 p.m. Sunday afternoon, the crowd fell absolutely silent for two minutes to honor those who have already suffered death or injury from climate change. People linked hands overhead, dark hands, light hands, every color of hand imaginable. It was so still you could hear birds sing in midtown Manhattan. At that moment, we realized this movement can do anything. But as one banner declared, to change everything, it takes everyone. There is so much to be done and no time to lose. With Congress in near gridlock and the House of Representatives in the grip of climate denial, activists, many of us, are looking elsewhere for pressure points. One, of course, is fossil fuel divestment. Nearly a year and a half ago, this congregation was among the first to vote to shed our endowment of fossil fuel stocks. Last June, the General Assembly of the Unitarian Universalist Association voted overwhelmingly to do the same. The campaign for Massachusetts divestment will resume with a new legislative session in January. Massachusetts has the opportunity to become a national model for climate policy by enacting a carbon tax. A revenue-neutral carbon tax would assess fossil fuels like oil, coal, and natural gas that are the primary cause of global warming. And the revenues would be returned in full to the people and businesses of Massachusetts. This system, called fee and dividend by those who avoid, understandably, the T word, would internalize the, the externalities of the carbon economy, which is economist talk for making the polluter pay for the pollution that right now all of us pay for in the form of illness and climate change. Zori Zimmerman of Climate Exchange, the organization leading the charge for a Massachusetts carbon tax, will be at social hour after worship to answer questions and enlist volunteers. Zori, are you here in the sanctuary? Yes, I thought so. That's Zori in the back, and she will be happy to talk with you about pricing carbon after worship. Thanks for being with us this morning. We were the first state to legalize same-sex marriage. We can be the first to pass a carbon tax. Meanwhile, the Unitarian Universalist Association and Unitarian Universalist Service Committee have launched Commit to Respond, a coalition of people of faith and conscience working for climate justice. 
Our grounding in climate justice, they say, means we recognize the central role inequality plays in the current crisis. Marginalized communities, low-income, people of color, native, and or non-industrialized are often the first to experience the effects of climate change and environmental degradation. We envision a future where the most vulnerable are protected from these dire consequences. The plan of commit to respond is for individuals, congregations, and organizations to commit to specific actions in each of three ways. One, growing the climate justice movement. Two, advancing the human rights of affected communities. And three, shifting to clean, renewable energy. You can find out more at committorespond.org. That's commit, the number two, respond.org. Just yesterday, when I picked up my daughter from gymnastics, I noticed for the very first time a poster on the wall. I'm sure it's been there for months or years. But I looked at it for the first time. It showed two humpback whales breaching in perfect synchrony. They're huge, elegant, gray-blue bodies breaking the surface at the precise same instant and arching together toward the sky. Their beauty, their intelligence, their innocence, and the mess we've made of their ocean habitat and our shared planet brought me to tears. We owe them better. We owe ourselves better. In this climate crisis, we face challenges unprecedented in human history. Let us build a world where the walrus and the whales and the humans all flourish. For the sake of our children, for the sake of the most vulnerable people on the planet, for the sake of the animals, for the sake of our souls in faith, in hope, and in love. Let us act. Amen. Ashe. And blessed be.